football is back, and BetMGM is inviting new customers to join the huddle and enjoy the action like never before. Sign up today using bonus code CHAMPION, and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Hey, I'm Anya Steiner, and you're listening to WET, the show where we talk about fascinating under-the-sea phenomena. And today, we're going to get wet and wild, because today's episode is about reproduction in the ocean, or as I like to say, sex in the sea. Today's episode is an adaptation of a presentation I gave when I was working on a research project in Italy. So when I first created it, I made a fun little PowerPoint to go with it. If you're interested in the original talk, I'll link the presentation in my show notes so you can check out all the pictures I found to complement this information, as well as some additional information on marine plants that I cut out to save time. So with that, enjoy today's episode. Life under the sea is complex and often elusive. So today, I hope to shed some light on a topic you might not know much about, sex in the sea. An integral step in both evolution and ecology, reproduction in marine environments is fundamentally different than in terrestrial environments. Marine organisms have adapted to reproduce in a way that breaks the confines of living on land and instead meets the needs of an environment with high fluid viscosity, high dimensionality, and high openness, as well as developing some intricate and mysterious mating habits. Today, I plan to address a large spectrum of information under the umbrella of sex and the sea, ranging from reproduction mechanics to ecologically driven spawning rituals. The overarching topics I will talk about include life histories, spawning strategies, and courtship behaviors. I'm excited to showcase the fascinating phenomena of sex in the sea and to help us all appreciate these intricate characteristics produced over evolutionary time. Before we can get into the juicy details, I'm going to start us off by talking about life histories, the base of all sex in the sea. But before we get too far along, you need to know what a life history is. An organism's life history describes the changes an organism goes through in its lifetime, which brings it to sexual maturity. Maybe you've heard this before described as a life cycle. Life histories can look very different between different marine species, but amongst most marine fauna, scientists observe two main life history strategies, direct and indirect. Let's start off our journey into life histories by looking at direct developers. Direct development also dubbed as simple development, is when juveniles of a species emerge from their mother or egg in an adult-like form. Examples of this include turtles, dolphins, whales, and some sharks. In direct development, even though an organism may experience some changes as it grows, 
a baby turtle, for example, still hatches looking similar to what it will look like as an adult. So direct developers have it pretty simple. But direct development is not the only life history strategy in marine fauna. In addition to direct developers, we also have indirect developers, known as complex developers. Unlike in direct development, where the babies look just like their parents, indirect development involves a larval stage and a metamorphosis into adult form. Oftentimes, this larval stage looks totally alien in regards to adults of its species. We see this strategy of indirect development in organisms like sea squirts, sea stars, and sea anemones. These complex development stages can include larval, settlement, metamorphosis, and adult. For example, in sea urchins, which exhibit indirect development, 28 hours after the fertilization of an embryo, this embryo hatches into free-floating planktonic larva phase, which looks totally unrecognizable as a sea urchin. Looking at a picture now, if I had to describe what a sea urchin in the larval plankton phase looks like, I would say it looks like a mini transparent tripod, but with more than three legs, like maybe an octopod or something. Or maybe I could just say that it looks like a weird spaceship. Anyways, after about 20 days dispersing away from its parents in the planktonic larval phase, the sea urchin will settle onto the seafloor and initiate a metamorphosis. Remember, in this case, metamorphosis just means a transformation from one distinct phase, the larval phase, to another, the adult phase. About six days following the metamorphosis of sea urchins, they have finished developing guts and are thus considered juvenile beings, now unrecognizable from their larval forms and instead resembling an adult individual. No longer do they look like little tiny floating transparent aliens as they now look like purple spiky balls on the ocean floor. <laughs> Indirect development poses a stark contrast to direct development, but both are significant as they each provide different benefits to species. So the main takeaways before we move on to spawning strategies are that the basic life histories of most marine animals can be classified as direct or indirect direct implying that the newborns look like adults of that species, and indirect suggesting that the newborns do not look like the adults of the same species until they go through metamorphosis. So now on to spawning strategies, and boy is there a lot of this under the sea. I could spend a whole hour talking about spawning strategies, but I've gone through the information and narrowed it down to the highlights. So, to keep us organized, I'm going to break it down and talk about four major classifications of spawning strategies. Non-garters, garters, bearers, and alternative strategies. These classification gills were originally coined to describe spawning in fishes by Dr. Ballin in 1975. But for the purpose of this episode of What, I'm going to give examples of some other of my favorite marine species as well, who also exhibit reproductive behaviors that fall into the parameters of each category. Okay, so out of our four categories, I'll start first with non-garters. And I have a lot to tell you about non-garters, because there are all sorts of degrees to which a marine organism can be a non-guarding species. But let's start from the top. 
You can kind of think of species that fall into the category of non-garters as species that go to a big party and then leave without providing any parental care to the resulting juveniles. An example of non-garters are the broadcast spawning red snappers, a type of fish. Red snappers aggregate at the edge of coral reefs, where at their big spawning parties, they do something called broadcast spawning. Broadcast spawning can work in two different ways, internal or external fertilization. And yes, the names give quite a bit away about these mechanisms. In externally fertilizing species, fertilization exclusively happens in open waters when males and females broadcast their sperm and eggs respectively. This happens with red snappers. In addition to some fish, limpets, clams, sea anemones, fanworms, and some other corals and jellyfish all reproduce externally by releasing their sperm and eggs to be fertilized by their neighbors. Internally fertilizing species, on the other hand, only broadcast male sperm. So, since only the males excrete sperm, that sperm, with any luck, must travel through the open ocean to a female where it will internally fertilize her eggs and the resulting zygote fertilized egg will be formed within the confines of the female. Moon jellies are an example of internal fertilizers where females collect male sperm that has been broadcast to fertilize her eggs internally. Other internal fertilizers can include some fish and corals as well. So whether it's internal or external fertilization, we see that broadcast spawning is common in many non-guarding species of fish and other marine organisms. While we're still on the topic of broadcast spawning, there's one last important thing to address, which you may be wondering. How is inbreeding prevented? Well, one way inbreeding is prevented in stationary species like corals is that due to dispersion via currents, close relatives are often separated. Moreover, for hermaphroditic species, species that produce both sperm and eggs, female and male parts go off at different times to avoid selfing which means just fertilizing one's own eggs with one's own sperm. For example, a 2005 study looking at three species of hermaphroditic corals in the Carophilia genus showed that the corals displayed cyclical hermaphroditism, where only one set of gametes is viable at any point in time in a single individual. Whew, that's a mouthful. Once viable gametes are spawned, the coral then grows the next set of gametes, creating a continuous cycle. So basically, corals that can produce sperm and eggs are producing only one at a time to avoid inbreeding. This is just one of the many ingenious ways evolution has shaped species to prevent inbreeding. So back to our non-garter red snappers. While some non-garters, such as the red snappers, provide absolutely no protection for young, other species of non-garters are benthic brooders, who lay fertilized eggs on windswept shores. Walleyes are a type of benthic brooding fish, and although they leave their eggs to fend for themselves, laying their eggs on shores offers more protections than red snappers do at the spawning aggregations. Other non-garter species, such as salmon, are brood hiders, which is a substrategy that offers slightly more protection than broadcast spawning. Females dig nests, called reds, where she deposits hundreds of eggs during her time spawning, but ultimately, she leaves her eggs as she dies soon after depositing them. And with that depressing thought, we can move on to our second category of spawning strategies, garters. Guarding species are species that expend energy guarding their fertilized eggs. In fishes, guarding behavior is often associated with territoriality and courtship, 
Which makes sense because if you're going to expend effort guarding your brood, you likely want that brood to be of an evolutionarily fit mate. Furthermore, in fishes, it tends to be males who guard the nests. This guarding is characterized by the male swimming around the eggs and fighting fish that pose a threat to the eggs. How romantic. Guarding is a common behavior in Centropidae fishes. If you fish, you might know them as snooks. But guarding is also seen in other marine animals as well, such as the octopus. The female giant Pacific octopus lays then guards her roughly 56,000 eggs over the course of five to six months after their fertilization. This mother octopus must gently stir her arms carefully over the eggs to prevent any harmful settlement, and with her siphon, blow water to keep the eggs oxygenated. Additionally, the mother octopus guards her den from any predators. Over this half a year period, she never once eats, letting the reserves of her energy in her body be consumed by her work so that her offspring can emerge safely, at which point she is on the verge of starving to death and will eventually die. So that's guarding for you. The third of our four spawning strategies exhibited by marine species is bearing. Bearers are organisms that carry embryos, fertilized eggs, with them either internally or externally. The classic example of internal bearers are, of course, pipefishes and seahorses in the order Cygnathiformes, where post-fertilization, the female places the embryos into the male for protection. The males then carry the fertilized eggs until they hatch. Some sharks, like whale sharks, are also live bearers, too. And while most bony fish lay eggs, the tule perch, a freshwater fish found in California, is a bearer and gives live birth to little baby fish. So cute! Also classified as bearers is one of my favorite examples of sex in the sea. Mouth brooders. Mouth brooders are totally crazy and I absolutely love them. Mouth brooders, like their name suggests, carry the yolk embryos in their mouth until they hatch, and often afterwards the juveniles will stay closely associated and may even retreat back into the mouth when threatened. While mouth brooding, which can be done by a male or female depending on the species, the committed parent does not eat. And after the eggs finally hatch, the parent is so underweight, it must commit time to purely recuperation. Mouth brooding is often seen in cichlids and jawfishes, but one of the craziest things about mouth brooding, in my opinion, is that even after one parent has expended practically all of its energy to mouth brood all of the young, once those babies hatch, if the other parent is around, it might immediately eat the young. And you thought that your kids with your parents were bad. Anyways, so far for spawning strategies, we've talked about non-garters, garters, and bearers. The last category of spawning strategies is alternative strategies, which encompasses a miscellaneous bunch of strategies, and the ones that I'm going to touch on are sequential hermaphroditism, sneakers, and sexual parasites. First up is sequential hermaphroditism, where a fish born one sex transitions into the opposite sex during its lifetime. Yes, this is a real thing. Sequential hermaphroditism exists in two forms. Protandrous, where an individual born male will transition into a female, and protogenous, where an individual born female will transition into a male. Both strategies are fairly abundant in the ocean. 
One example of a protanderous fish that most people don't know are protanderous, switch from male to female, are clownfish. For this reason, Finding Nemo is extremely inaccurate as Marlin should have transitioned into a female after the death of his fish wife, but I guess Disney forgot to consult their local ichthyologist because they did not go in that direction. An example of a protogenous fish is the moonrass that switches from a female to a male when triggered by environmental conditions. Often, stress can trigger this change due to the release of cortisol in the fish. Sequential hermaphroditism is an important alternate strategy in some fish for continual reproductive success and survival. Another alternative strategy is sneaking. So, on to sneaker species, there are two strategies for males in a species that has sneakers. One strategy is being a big and bold male to win females to mate with, and the other is being a sneaker male. Sneaker males can either look like females and can therefore sneak into mating rituals to deposit their sperm, or are just really tiny and can slip into the rituals unnoticed long enough to deposit their sperm. This to me is a great example of why sex in the sea is so cool, because mating like this can't happen on land since, well, you can imagine why it might not work on land. Finally, the last alternative strategy I'm going to touch on are sexual parasites. Aside from the Osidex worms, which we will talk a little bit about in the deep sea episode, the only example I could find of sexual parasites are some angler fishes. In these fishes, males follow species-specific pheromones secreted by the female who can further aid in the male's search for a mate by flashing her bioluminescent lures. Very saucy. After finding a female, the male bites through the female's flesh and latches on until their bodies fuse, including the skin and blood vessels, allowing the male to take all the nutrients he needs from the host, or female. Since the male is no longer responsible for basic survival, his eyes, fins, and some of his organs atrophy until he is little more than a lump of flesh, absorbing his mate's food and supplying sperm when needed. So, not much different than the typical toxic boyfriend. And with that creepy example, we've finished spawning strategies and are moving on to the last subtopic of sex in the sea, courtship behaviors. In the sea, there are many mysterious sexually driven behaviors, so to conclude this episode of WET, I'm going to explain a few of my favorite. First, there is the Japanese pufferfish's love masterpiece. This little male pufferfish takes courting his woman very seriously. When it is time for him to breed, the Japanese pufferfish dutifully dusts his fins on the seafloor, removes rubbish in the sand, and thoughtfully arranges seashells he finds in his area of this little pufferfish will work tirelessly for 24 hours a day for a week without rest until his masterpiece of love is complete. If our little fish stopped creating, he would risk that the ocean current would wipe his canvas clear, so he must work hastily, creating the intricate peaks and valleys. Ta-da! This three-inch-long pufferfish's complex work is finished and can be up to seven feet in diameter. If the female approves, the two will mate and the circle will become a nest for their eggs. 
And now for the dolphin lovers out there, of course we see interesting courting behaviors in cetaceans as well. One of my favorite courting behaviors in dolphins is their use of gifts in attracting a mate. In the BBC documentary series Dolphins, Spy in a Pod, the cameras catch male bottlenose dolphins using bouquets of seaweed to successfully court females. The male will toss the seaweed between his fins, tail, and nose in attempts to impress his prospective lady. Moreover, researchers in Australia have observed humpback dolphins diving to the seafloor, where a male will detach a sea sponge, which he then balances on his beak and pushes towards the female. Nothing more attractive than good balance, I guess. Both these courtship behaviors suggest complexity in the social context of mating for these dolphin species. And they're just pretty cool. Another sensual courtship routine in the sea is the romance of the sea dragon dance. Many species of Cygnathiformes have courtship dances. Some dance every morning, how cute! But the dance between the male and female weedy sea dragon takes place every spring. The two weedy sea dragons perform a mirror dance in the fading evening light where they dance, mirroring the swimming and wriggling of each other's bodies. They dance through the night, sometimes for up to 24 hours, and the female, if impressed, will transfer her eggs to the male's tail. Two months later, the results of the successful courtship are revealed when the eggs begin to hatch. Yay! And now, drumroll please, and I've saved the best for last, the craziest courtship behavior of under-the-sea species definitely has to be flatworm penis fencing. Yes, you heard me right. Flatworm penis fencing. In general, propagating a species is a greater energy investment for females who produce fewer, larger eggs than males who can deposit large number of sperm that were relatively cheap to produce. So, in hermaphroditic flatworms, flatworms that have male and female parts, it is more favorable to play the role of the male in a reproduction event. So favorable, in fact, that it's worth fighting for. When it's time to mate, some flatworm species fence with their penises and try and overtake the other, leaving the loser with the weight of bearing and surviving their fertilized zygotes. Bummer. And that insane courtship wraps up what I have to say about sex in the sea. Today we learned about the mechanics and the flirty details of sex in the sea. Specifically, we covered the two main types of life histories marine animals have, direct and indirect. We looked at four spawning strategies, non-garters, garters, bearers, and alternative strategies. And we gossiped about the juiciest sex in the sea courtships, including romantic sea dragon dancing and flatworm penis fencing. The mysterious world hidden under the blanket of the ocean is home to so many unseen rituals and behaviors that can only happen in such a world with high fluid viscosity, openness, and dimensionality as the ocean. Today, I hope to have uncovered just a few of these fantastic phenomena for you and hope to leave you with a bit of curiosity about what other secrets lie in such a mysterious medium. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of What?
this episode was written, produced, recorded, literally everything by me, Anya Steiner. All music was written and recorded and produced by Michael Sanchez. All of my sounds are from freesound.com. And my citations will, as usual, be available in the show notes in case you want to read more. That's also where I'll link my presentation with the pictures that go along with this. Thanks! Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.